Amen. You may be seated and good morning. For those of you I've not met, my name's Steve, and it's my privilege to introduce to you just a sweet couple Tammy and I have grown to love. This is TJ and Jess McCall, and they are planting a church in Palm Springs, California. Talk about the belly of the beast, right? And uh, as a church, uh, our elders met with them this past summer, uh, and we are supporting them in this. And so they're getting ready to start launching preview services. So before all that started, I wanted to get them here so you could meet them, so you could be praying for them. And uh, maybe a couple of you might want to head over and give them a hand on something. You'll hear a little bit about that. So TJ, tell us about the story of all of this start with Passion Church. Yeah, um, we're really excited to share with you what God is already beginning to do out there in Palm Springs. But before we do, we just want to say thank you. Um, we literally could not be doing what we are doing out there without the help and the support of this church. Um, and it's not just the financial support, but it's the prayer support. It's the emotional support. It's Pastor Steve and Tammy and, and the elders and, and many of you. Uh, who are just making it possible for us to be in Palm Springs to reach people with the wonderful news of Jesus. And so we want to say thank you to uh, this church for all that you've done for us. Uh, for those of you who might not know us personally, we're TJ and Jess, and uh, we have six kids. We have... <laughs> our, uh, our youngest is seven, all the way up through our 20-year-old who is getting married next month. So we're excited about that for sure. Um, our older three are biological, and our younger three we've adopted through the foster care system. And so that adventure, that story is just a beautiful picture of God's grace and, and what he's done for us. So we've been married for 21 years, and we've been in full-time ministry for that entire time. And in that time, we've done pretty much everything I think you can do in ministry. We've started with kids ministry, student ministry, college and young adult. TJ's been an associate pastor and a lead pastor. So heading into this church planting adventure, we thought we had it all, you know, we, we were ready. We were prepared for it. God had made it what we needed, like everything we needed. Um, and we know that he has. Like, he's designed this path. He's brought us to this moment. But guys, planting a church is really, really hard. <laughs> it is. And um, I, just like Desert Springs, I, I've always been a part of the Venture Church Network, except out in California. And we had a church out there in Palm Springs. It was started in 1963. And it kind of hit its peak in the 70s and the 80s during, you know, the, the Jesus People movement. Um, and, but over the last couple of decades, uh, they just started to kind of decline and struggle. And they were getting older and smaller. And so about a year and a half ago, back in October of 22, they decided to close the doors. Uh, they knew that they were not able to reach the community there uh, the way that God wanted them to. But they had a passion for that. And so they took their building and their property and they gave it to the church network uh, Because they wanted to see a new church in that city and in that building And specifically they said they wanted to see the kind of church that their grandkids would love to attend And so that week that's when the network called us And they said hey if you come out and you start a new church here in Palm Springs We believe that you, you guys are the perfect people to do this and we'll give you the building, we'll give you the property, we'll help you raise all the support, we'll coach you through it. And they said, Palm Springs needs churches like what you guys could bring. And so obviously, I told them, no. 
we were happy where we were. Um, God was using us. Um, we're from California, but we were very happy here in Arizona. And um, moving again wasn't on the radar. Church planting definitely was not. Um, but then I got off the phone after telling them no thank you. And we talked about it and we prayed about it. And over the next couple of weeks, God just made it really clear that this is what he had next for us to do. Especially as we heard that Palm Springs is one of the most underchurched cities in all of the United States and people aren't really going there to plant churches and God really just cemented that burden in our hearts that this is what I'm calling you to do and you need to go do it. So, and we think about a couple things when we think of Palm Springs. We think about the tourism and the snowbirds, which are amazing and a blessing to the community. And we also think about the casinos, the music festivals. Um, there's also a very large pride community there. And with all of that comes a lot of immorality, consumerism. Um, and so it's kind of like Hollywood, Las Vegas, San Francisco, all rolled into one city there in Palm Springs. So we knew all this going into it, but we didn't really realize until we moved there last June the depth of darkness, the spiritual darkness that is there in Palm Springs. Between the um, domestic issues, the drug addiction, the homelessness, there is just a hold on this city. There's an oppression on this city that we weren't really expecting at this level. Um, we've even been threatened and attacked on social media just because, just for inviting people to our church, just announcing that a new church is coming. We've been told that we're not welcome there and there's a group that doesn't want us there. So it's just a level of spiritual attack that we've never really seen before in ministry. Yeah, and that's the city that God is calling us to reach and start a new church in. Um, but we're excited to do it. God gave us this passion for the city because we know there are people there who need to hear the wonderful news of Jesus. And we believe that God is about to start a revival there in Palm Springs and throughout the Coachella Valley. There are people who are going to be saved. There are lives that are going to be changed, families that are going to be changed. And we believe that God is on the move to change the entire community and even the reputation that the valley has uh, through his work of the gospel. And God hasn't just called us to go and start a new church there. He gave us a building and five acres right there in the middle of the city. So it was really clear. Um, but, but that's where the challenge really begins. Because we're, we're called to go and reach this city that has made it really clear that they don't want to be reached. Uh, we're fundraising from scratch. We're building a team from scratch. And uh, we have this building that, as we like to say, it was built in the 60s, it was updated in the 80s, and it was last cleaned in the 90s. So there's a lot to do, but, but God is good, right? And God's already been doing amazing things. Um, we have seen God give us, and he, we're out there because he provided the necessary funding we needed to get there and to get started. Um, he's built this team around us of amazing people on our core team. Um, we're having these small groups. We're having community serve projects where we get out and we're already making an impact there. We're having prayer and worship nights. We're bringing in other pastors and worship teams from the valley and just having people pray for revival there in the city. Uh, this month, we're having our first kids event, our first students event, and we're going to start our preview services in March. So we're excited for what God is about to do there in Palm Springs. Yes, absolutely. So here's how you can be part of helping us reach Palm Springs. First, please be praying for us. Be praying for us and for our team out there in Palm Springs. Um, what we're trying to do and accomplish is more than we can do in our own strength, more than our team can do in their own strength. But we know that God is able to do exceedingly more abundantly than anything we could ever dream or imagine. And that's the power we are resting in. That's the truth we are leaning on. So please be praying for us in that area. 
And then second, we still have a really long way to go in the next couple of months before we start our Sunday morning worship experiences. We're still praying that God will bring a worship leader, raise up a worship leader for us, and we also need some more people on our launch team there in Palm Springs. Um, and we have a lot to do on our wonderful building that God has blessed us with. So um, as you're praying, uh, maybe God would lay it on your heart to come out and join us for a weekend and help us get this building cleaned up and in shape um, as we get ready to start services. So thank you, everyone, and we're just so excited to have you on this adventure with us. Yeah, so seriously, if, you know, a couple days in Palm Springs, you can go swing a hammer clean it would be really helpful i mean it's an incredible so i'm a church guy right incredible location i couldn't believe it. it's right off of california 111 which is the main drag through there and in a wonderful community uh but uh we get the privilege of being able to support them so many of you know that in our budget we have a good amount of money that we put towards church plants because we're in our construction phase right now we're not planting our own so we're helping one of our ones we've already planted but the rest is, is going with this and we're very very excited about it but we do need to be praying so i hope you've taken a picture so that you will remember on your prayer list to be praying for them and be praying for their protection I mean, again, a couple moments, it's already gotten pretty nasty. Uh, praying for their, their team to be built up, and then they really do need a worship leader, and that God would, would put that. So I want to pray together. I want you to join us as we pray for them this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, you build your church. It's not ours, it's yours. And that you, uh, Lord, put it in the heart of this church that even though they were going away, they wanted it to count and matter for the kingdom. I thank you for laying this upon TJ and Jess's heart and their family's heart. And Lord, our prayer would be that not only would you protect them, but you would give them great grace, strength, wisdom. We pray, Lord, I, I know our prayer has been that there would be 40 on this launch team and that, Lord, you would provide for a worship leader. You also know, Lord, the, the building is both a huge blessing, but it's, it's also a lot of work right now. And I pray, God, that you would provide for all the updates uh, and the hands and the laborers to be able to get it to that place where when the community comes, Lord, that they, they will feel that they can engage with you, they can connect with others, and that they can then go live on mission. So, Lord, we're thankful for the privilege to be able, as a church, to be a part of this and what you're doing there in an area that is so needy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's tell them we're proud of them. Make sure you pray for them, though, okay? Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, Tammy and I got actually a chance to stop over and, and see the building uh, and then meet and have lunch with them again uh, this past uh, December, and it's just, God's doing some cool stuff, and it's fun that he gives us a chance to be a part of it. So if you got your Bibles, we're in the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 12. This, uh, we're working our way through. If you weren't with us last week, we began this. Uh, the first, focus primarily on the first five verses of Revelation chapter 12. Let me just back up in case you have not been with us. 
So the outline for the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write the things he has seen, that's chapter 1. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3. The things which will come hereafter, that's chapter 4 on. There are four major events that are outlined in the book of Revelation. The bulk of the book is about the tribulation. That's a seven-year period, and as we're going to see today, there's a little line in between because it's really divided into two halves, and that'll become clear today, my hope. The second major event of what brings the tribulation to the close, it's the second coming of Christ. That then ushers in the third major event, which is what we call the millennial kingdom, that for a thousand years, Jesus will literally rule and reign here on the earth. And oh, by the way, we get to rule and reign with him. That's another discussion for another day, which is really cool. That then ultimately leads to eternity. Now, one of the big questions, especially when people are new, it's like, well, I thought one of the next big events is the rapture. Well, for us, I mean, obviously it's one we're focused on, but the book of Revelation doesn't specifically mention it. So we spent some time on it early in our study, so if you're new, we would see it uh, actually happening before the tribulation time, though some see it happening during or at the end, and, you know, everybody's welcome, that's great. Uh, but our, our sense is, is that the, the teaching of Scripture would be happened before. Now, if you weren't with us last week, and this is really just kind of a part B of that message, but we were introduced into these players of this historic conflict. And by historic, it goes literally back to the beginning of time in the fall of Satan. It is going to come to an end here in the book of Revelation at, and really at the end of the tribulation moment. And so chapter 12 is a, in a bit of a parenthesis We've been talking about the judgments. He stopped. He's given us some of the insight of what's going on behind it. And so last week, we looked at the four major players. The first one we were introduced to is a woman who represents Israel, and she is about ready to give birth to, to a child. The second player, which is in verses uh, 3 and 4, is the red dragon, who is Satan. And of course, we'll see more about him today uh, because uh, obviously he is the main adversary. But his adversary primarily is not the woman. His primarily, historically, his adversary is, is the child, the Messiah. Because without Jesus, without the Messiah, he wins. And so that's kind of how it's played out through history. And now that uh, Jesus is getting ready to come back, he's attacking the woman, and we'll get into all that. The fourth major one is then, we'll read about him today in our reading, but it's, it's Michael the archangel who leads the armies of God. So those are the four players. I want to start reading today in verse 6. And we'll read down through the rest of the passage. So if you'll read along with me, that would be great. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there, there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away from the flood. For the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what we're introduced to here is a war in heaven. Now a lot of people don't know this or maybe they've never even thought about it, but where is Satan today? Well, Satan presently, as best we understand Scripture, has access to God's presence in heaven. Did you know that? I mean, we even see that here in, um, in verse 10. He says, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God. We also see it in the book of Job. So if you've read Job and you know that story, it all starts with, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, where? Before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. I think we even see it there in the book of Luke, where Jesus is talking to Peter uh, on that night that he's going to be betrayed, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Well, how can he? Well, without access, you can't do that. And so Satan has that place where he can go before God. He accuses us. The great thing is our high priest is there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But at that midway point of the tribulation, Satan and his angels are forcefully booted out of heaven. They're kicked out. In fact, did you notice in verse 9, it actually says it three times. The great dragon was thrown down. The one who deceives the world, he was thrown down. The angels were thrown down with him. I mean, they are. there's a war that is waged in heaven. Now, I would remind you, chapter 12 is not about what's happening on the earth. It's what's happening in heaven. And Satan is kicked out. And this is the beginning of the end. In fact, you'll notice what it says there in the end of verse 12. He has just a short time. In fact, three and a half years. Because in three and a half years, Jesus is going to return. 
And Jesus is going to take Satan and put him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then ultimately, when you get to the end of chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, he is cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. So this is the beginning of the end. So when he comes, he comes knowing his time is short with great fury, right? His in his mind, his last chance to try to stop this. And so how does he try to stop it? He tries to stop it by going after Israel. We talked about it. This historic battle that is played out through all of history. So if he can't kill the, the, the Messiah, then the next way he could reroute the plan of God is by destroying the nation of Israel. No Israel no kingdom and so he's going to turn on her and so how is he going to do this well through the antichrist the antichrist is the one who will turn on israel at this midpoint in the tribulation now what's really interesting is that we don't just find this in revelation chapter 12 but literally it was introduced to us and we looked at it though you may not have picked it up back when we were looking at the book of Daniel as to when does the tribulation start. So if you remember, Daniel chapter 9 was that key passage where Daniel is seeking the Lord about all what's going to happen to Israel. And God says there are 70 weeks or 70 groups of seven. We believe them to be years, 490 years that are determined upon Israel to, to bring in the kingdom. 483 of those years have already taken place. There's one of those group of seven years left, one week that is left. And so Daniel 9 says this, and he, the he there, you got to go to the verse before that, it's the Antichrist, it's the prince who is to come. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's that last seven years. That is the tribulation. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that it is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's going to make a covenant. I'm going to protect you. So one of the really fun pieces is thinking about, when, especially when you get a chance to go to Israel, there is Mount Moriah, right? There's the Temple, the temple Mount, which now, uh, even though it's under Israeli control, uh, there's a mosque up there, and then there's the Dome of the Rock, and, and, and that's where all the tension, when it happens with, with, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, that's what it's about. Because Israel wants to build that next temple. There is a third temple coming. In fact, one of the places we go to is the Temple Institute, where they've actually created the things that will be used, the trumpets, the, the priest ephods. All of those things are already in existence for this next temple. It's coming. So the question is, when is it built? Well, maybe it's built before the tribulation, or maybe that's even that firm covenant. I will protect you. I'll deal with the, with, with the, 
the, the Muslims who don't want you to put it up there and you can go build your temple and you can worship your God and you can do your offerings and your sacrifices and all of those things. And so he's going to make this covenant for seven years. But at that midpoint, he is now going to turn on them. The, the key piece here is, is that this is when Satan is thrown down. And now his time is short, and he is going to go after Israel. And what does it say? He will stop the sacrifice, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. A little bit later in the book of Daniel, we'll get there later in our study, but in Daniel chapter 11, there was a man who came already who, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He, uh, he came and he desecrated the temple by setting up an altar in there and sacrificing pigs. The picture is what's going to happen is this Antichrist is going to go in and desecrate the temple. We think, and we'll see this a little bit later, that he's actually going to set up a statue to himself and cause people to worship him. But it is the abomination of desolation. When does it happen? That's the key. At the midpoint, that's, you go back to Revelation chapter 12. This is at the midpoint. In fact, if you go back to verse 6, when the woman flees, how long does she flee for? 1,260 days. In the, Rome, in the Jewish calendar, each month is 30 days. How much is 1,260? It is three and a half years. You see it again down in verse 14. In the wilderness, there's a place that God has prepared, and she will be nourished there for a time, times, and a half a time. A time is one, times are two. One plus two is three, and a half a time, three and a half years. This is the midpoint. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, I want you to turn to this one, because I want you to see this. Matthew 24 if you remember, if you were with us, this is kind of the Reader's Digest version of the book of Revelation. Uh, cliff Notes, whatever your generation is. Uh, this is the, the short story where Jesus begins to lay out there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, people coming promising peace. There's going to be famine and pestilence and death and martyrdom. I mean, it lines up perfectly with those first six seals in Revelation chapter 6. But when you get to verse 15, now he begins to talk about this midpoint. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. That's Daniel 9.27. We just looked at When you see that, this is what he says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains run who's ever in the field or whoever's in the housetop must not go down to get things out of the house who is ever in the field must not turn back to get his cloak woe to those who are pregnant to those who are nursing babies in those days pray your flight will not be in the winter on a sabbath for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about Revelation chapter 12. The midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is kicked out of heaven. 
is brought to the earth. He knows his time is short. And so he turns now on Israel. Because again, if you can kill the nation of Israel, which he's tried to do so many times, then there's no kingdom. There can be no fulfillment of the promise. He thwarts God's plan. What God says is, okay, that's coming. But what God has done is prepared a place for safety for them in the wilderness a place where they're going to flee from persecution where they're going to run where god's going to nourish them think of elijah when the when the drought came remember god provided and brought you know the birds brought them food and there was a little spring there god's going to provide for them now the question is where are they going to flee called wilderness the answer is we don't know scripture doesn't tell us there's a lot of people that hypothesize. I just thought I would mention it because some of you are going, I know. Well, eh, it might be, but we don't know. But a lot of people hypothesize that it might be over in the area of, of Petra. Uh, if you've not been there, Petra, of course, you've probably seen it on, um, you know, Indiana Jones movie there too, right? Because to get to it, it's a fascinating place. If you ever get a chance to go, it's really cool because it's, it's so narrow to get in there. It's one of the most defensible places on the earth. Uh, you, can't, you can't run an army through there. And then once you get back there, there's all these, they're, they're graves, they're, but they're caves in the wall. And, uh, and so a lot of people think maybe this is. And, and there's, there's actually some reason. So when you get to Daniel 11, and we'll look at Daniel 11 later on in, in, our, in our study when we get to chapter 17. Daniel 11 says this about the Antichrist. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued. He's not going to be able to go there. Edom. Y'all know where Edom is? So... If you were to stand in Israel today, look over the Jordan River, you have up to the north what we biblically call Gilead, and then Ammon, and then Moab, and then down south across from the desert, uh, the Dead Sea is Edom. That's where Petra is. And so God, it seems like, is going to, you know, there could be a realistic place there. The whole point is this. God's going to protect Israel. Right? He gives her the, the wings of an eagle, the idea of strength and speed. He's going to nourish her there. Uh, one of the other things that we see here is that Satan is going to try to destroy Israel then in verse 15. He poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that uh, he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened his mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out on his mouth. So when they're fleeing, he knows that. So he's going to try to kill them there. So the question is, like a flood of water, is it, is it literally water? It could be. You can imagine in these dry places, uh, one of the big things that they have there is you know, it's so dry so that when there's rain or there's a big onset of water, the flood is incredible. So as you blow up a dam or something like that, we don't know. Or is it maybe more of a flood of evil? We don't know. But the point is the, the earth opens up her mouth and, and absorbs it. And, and you think of the pictures in the Old Testament. For instance, in the Exodus, when the armies were chasing after Israel through the Red Sea, 
in the very next chapter as they're singing the song of Moses, what they say is, is the earth opened up and swallowed the enemy. You think of uh, Korah when he took on Moses and, and remember all those priests that they, they wanted to be the high priest and God said, step back, right? And he opened up the earth and he swallowed them up. But the earth is going to, whatever this flood is, literal water or something else, is, is going to take care. And God is going to protect Israel, the nation of Israel. So what happens? He can't get to the nation of Israel. So what does he do? That's verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children. It's the rest of her children. So, the children of Abraham, what we read in the New Testament, are two types. There's the, the physical seed, that's Israel. God's got a promise for them, Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's a future for them. But there's also the spiritual seed of Abraham, those that are by faith. That's us. And so I think when Satan can't get now to that, what, what is he going after? He's going after the other people, God, Christians. You remember earlier in the book of Revelation, we had that picture of, uh, of the throne room of heaven and all of these who have been martyred for the sake of Christ and they're crying out, how long, how long, O Lord, till you avenge us? He said, just wait, just wait. Let's wait till it's all filled up. And I think we are entering these last three and a half years where Christians are gonna be hunted down and slaughtered like, like rogue, you know, what do they go after now? Hogs and ferals, all that kind of stuff. That means that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Now, there's a piece here, and I, I kind of jumped into it a little bit last week, and I want to come back to it, is that in the midst of all this, there's some really good truth for us. It's a reminder of our enemies. Because this is, this is not just in the book of Revelation. I usually don't say this because to me it's really self-serving Tell you go back and watch a former message, right? But if you missed last week's, really, we, we kind of walked through the entire Bible and walked it through this historic battle, war that has been waged between the enemy, Satan, and God, the Messiah very specifically. And this is what's bringing it to resolution. But you've got to remember that we have an enemy. And one of the things that he has done, I think, so brilliantly is he creates these humorous caricatures of himself, almost comical. We talked last week about, you know, this idea of the little red guy with the pointy, you know, points on his head and the pointy tail and the pitchfork, you know, and, you know, we kind of laugh at it. Or, or I can remember as a kid that would watch the, you know, the comics on TV, the, and you know how they always portrayed Satan? He's the little cute guy that sat on your shoulder. You remember that? Yeah, just try to get you to paint outside the lines a little bit, right? And, and then the guy with the halo would show up and you'd knock him off, right? And you'd, you'd, you'd go with this. And it, or, or the fact that, oh, he just doesn't exist. No, he exists. That's why we're to be vigilant. And what we find in this passage, and I don't want you to miss this, is that there are six words here, six names for Satan. 
that reveal his character. Uh, start in verse 9, and the great dragon, right? We talked about this last week because he was introduced in verse 3 as the red dragon. Red, the idea of a murderer, the blood of, of all those that he kills. That's, you know, Satan, Satan is the one who is a murderer, and he's been that from the beginning. But the idea of the dragon is the uncontrollable beast, the one that can never be tamed. The second word that he uses here, also in verse 9, the serpent of old. Well, what's a serpent? The serpent is subtle. That's how we're first introduced to him, right? He shows up. Ah, did God really say, you won't die? He's subtle. You know, Satan showed up in our lives in the red with the pointy, you know, uh, points, ears on him, the pitchfork. You know, we probably would all run. We would probably say, get behind me, Satan, right? That's not how he shows up. He's subtle. We talked about last week of how, you know, one of the biggest things that he uses are false prophets, and the false prophets that are really good are the ones who have just enough truth that make it sound good. He's subtle. The third word that he uses here is devil. The word devil means slanderer. I think it even ties into this idea that he's accuser of the brethren, and we'll look at that in a moment, but he slanders, right? He he thinks the worst. He says the worst. And I find that interesting. Slander. The devil. And yet you and I all know people if we're not victims ourselves. I love the church. I'm a churchman. I've grown up around the church. I care about the church. I believe the church is God's instrument. But you and I all know people if we're not one of them ourselves who has been hurt by the church, people in the church. How does it happen most often? Slander. People who think the worst instead of the best. People who make accusations that are not fair or not true. People who talk around you instead of to you. Folk, that all from Satan because that's who he is. The next word is Satan, which means adversary. That's that whole idea that Peter gave us. You, you need to be alert. You need to be vigilant. He is our adversary. The next one that he uses is there um, where he talks about he's this deceiver who deceives the whole world. Paul talks about how he shows up as the angel of light. He's a deceiver. He he gets us off target. He, he, he gets us focused on wrong things. He's a deceiver. The last term and, and title really there is then in verse 10. He's the accuser of the brethren. But here's the cool thing, right? So, so he's up there accusing us, right? But at the same time, we have a high priest, what Hebrews tells us, who is our defense attorney. And every time he's accused, it's like, no. He's clean. He's holy. He's righteous. He's wrapped in my righteousness, right? He's forgiven. And so, quite honestly, Satan has no success in accusing us before our Father. But you know where he does have success in accusing us? To ourselves. You know, one of Satan's biggest ploys, oh, is he tempts. 
like, did God really say, oh, you won't die, it won't hurt, nobody will know, you know, hey, it's, it's not going to matter, right? This is just between us. It'll make you feel good. And we step over the line. And the minute we step over the line, what do we hear him whisper in our ear? And you call yourself a Christian. How could God love you? You're worthless. You see, he accuses us to ourselves. And so many Christians live in such incredible, incredible defeat because of the accuser of the brethren. Accuses us to himself. I, I got to finish. Oh, it's supposed to be done right now. Okay, now I'm going to really have to hurry. Because, but you can't, you can't deal with this passage without picking up verse 11. This is the most important piece. And they overcame him. Folk, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't have to fear Satan. You don't have to fear Satan today. You just need to be vigilant. You need to know who he is, and you need to take these three things. So what's the first thing he says? And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. You stand in your identity in Christ. Yes, Satan, I'm not perfect, and yes, I screwed up, but I have confessed it. I stand forgiven. I stand holy before my Father. I am a child of God. I am loved by him. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You stand in your identity. Number two, he says this. He says, and because of the word of their testimony, they lived on mission. You see, their life was not just going about and Christianity was a part of their life. It was their life. They lived and they shared Jesus. When you and I live and share Jesus, you know what it means? It means that we're alert. We're alert that there's an enemy out there that's trying to trip us up. An enemy is trying to get us off, offline. The third thing that he says this, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. They're victorious because they were living for that day. We talk about this all the time. The heart of the Christian worldview is a two-world view. This world is not our home. And as Christians, to be victorious, we got to live for that day more than today we got to live with everything in a view that we're going to stand and give an account and we're going to be in heaven and we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So, folk, here's what I need you to understand. you got to stand in your identity in Christ. Let's be honest today. Every one of us, even those of us who know Jesus, have still screwed up, right? Anybody want to argue with me on that one? We've all screwed up, and sometimes it's been big. And yet when we live in that spirit of repentance, we know that we are forgiven, that we stand in the righteousness of Christ, and that God is even able to take our mistakes and make something beautiful out of them. Number two, we live on mission. Our life is here about living Jesus with our life and sharing Jesus with our lips. Number three, we live for that day, not today.